Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Last week, we stopped looking at the big macro picture that was the spring and autumn period, and instead viewed the life of just one man. Though, that one man was pretty important in the fact that he was, well, Confucius. But by looking at his life, though, we were able to finally see the inner workings of one of these powerful states from the period. That, of course, being the Lu state. When we looked at the Zhou dynasty from afar and dug deep into the five hegemons, we saw how the dukes of these states acted as almost semi-autonomous kings in their own right. And they really were only seeking official dynastic approval for bare minimum legitimacy purposes. The Mandate of Heaven, even right now at a low point, is still, well, yeah, the Mandate of Heaven. But what now? So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 11, Terminal Decay and Sun Zhu. When we looked at Confucius, who lived just after the Five Hegemons, the Duke system itself within the Lu state began to crumble. Everything was breaking down. Because first it was just the dynasty and their court running the show over subservient vassal kingdoms. But then it kind of decentralized a bit after the Western Zhou fell into pieces. There was the central dynastic court, but now the vassal states were a little less subservient and dukes began to rise in power. But then during the hegemon age, that decentralization grew as essentially the eastern court rewarded an individually centralized state i.e. one that had its own army, its own financing, and its own self-sufficient economy. So think about the dynasty in the beginning as being one massive mountain. It's in the middle. It is the peak of everything around it. But by the end of the hegemon period, though, that massive mountain that was the centralized dynasty was now just a mere hill, surrounded by 12 medium-sized mountains, those being, of course, the continually growing states. But now the decentralization was reaching a terminal phase. And as we saw in the Lu state, even the dukes began to lose authority, as now noble families began running the show. So in short, we went from one dynastic court running the entire show, to hundreds of noble families across all of China running their own individual shows. You can see how this might end in some 200-year warring states period, right? And yeah, to clarify, our look into the Lu state and the growing power noble families there was not confined to just the Lu state, because this was happening everywhere. In 588 BC, the Jin state Jin, once a hegemon state and still one of the top four most powerful states, had its own duke system totally undone. The Jin state fielded some big armies. We saw them crush states and obviously, yeah, were so powerful that they were declared a hegemon at one point. But now, well, that's gone. Because in 588 BC, the Jin state army broke into six completely independent divisions. And now you're probably thinking, okay, well, who is leading these six independent divisions of the Jin state army? Well, they are led by six noble families. So yeah, now it's beginning to become clear how we went from strong dynasty to a pretty decentralized warlord system. The six families, though, of the Jin state that took over were the Zhao, the Wei, the Han, the Fan, the Zhi, and the Zhongxing families. 
And just like we saw last week in the Lu state during Confucius's time, the heads of the six families were the respective ministers of one of the six departments in the government. So from this point on, historians begin to refer to the six ministers as the true power brokers of the extremely powerful Jin state. And yes, in 562, a decade plus one year before Confucius is born, the same thing happened to the Lu state, which as we know broke down their army and their minister positions amongst, yeah, three families. However, while all of this was going on, in the distance, a threat loomed. Now, you might have picked up on this, but lately it's just been infighting within the dynasty and infighting within individual states. But where, but where are the barbarians? This is probably the best time to pick at the completely defunct dynasty. Well, yeah. A pseudo-barbarian state called the Wu, W-U, enters the stage in around the year 584 BC. In modern-day Jiangsu, the Wu state was a barbarian state that sounds a lot like the classic Germanic and Gallic barbarian states in ancient Rome. Oh, and by the way, quick side note, Rome around this time just got conquered by the Etruscans. Anyway, the Wu barbarians were a menacing lot. They were tatted up, cut their hair super short, and although old Chinese historians say they were founded by someone of Chinese dynastic origins, they, they probably were not. And even if they were, it didn't matter, because they had never participated in the dynasty so far. Not in their wars, not in their politics, nothing. But in 584 BC, they began to invade the border state known as the Tan, T-A-N. But not everybody was scared of them. Them, of course, being the Wu state. And in fact, some saw an opportunity to use this new state, or you know, whatever you want to call it, to their own advantage. As we know, the Jin state and the Chu state really, really, really hate each other. Like, hate, hate each other. The Jin state, realizing a potentially great opportunity, quickly dispatched an ambassador to the court of the Wu state king. The Jin state promised to supply the Wu state with modern military technology and training in exchange for an alliance against the Chu state, which were actually a neighbor of the Wu. And yeah, the Jin state's arch nemesis in the struggle for hegemony. So the Jin state said, hey, look, we'll arm you up, train you up, bring you into the highest echelon of military technology, just so long as you direct all of that to the true state. Arming a barbarian state to the teeth and training them? Look, I can't see how that could go wrong. But go wrong it will, but not in 584 BC. So, back to the big picture. By 579 BC, the states all began to get war-weary. War is expensive, it's bloody, and it's politically risky. I mean, if you lose, it's all over. And on top of that, the position of Ba, the hegemon, the thing that, you know, they were all fighting for, was becoming outdated. So the states all said, essentially, well, look, guys, wait a minute, what are we doing here? So the Qi, the Qin, the Jin and the Chu states decided to all meet. So they hosted a disarmament conference in 579 BC and all agreed to declare a truce to limit their military strength, essentially saying, look guys, we've gone down this road a little too far, time to maybe, you know, back it up a little bit. But the peace was short-lived. The four major states by this point had each acquired their own spheres of literally total control, 
And the notion of protecting Zhou territory, you know, of the Zhou dynasty, had become pretty unimportant. And instead, it was really about stopping non-Zhou people. And yeah, as well as stopping the true state from expanding. So there was a huge, vague distinction between the Zhou dynasty and the non-Zhou, so they didn't really know what they were doing. Was this all to stop the true state? Was this to stop non-Zhou peoples? What are we doing? Dysfunction here was terminal. And on top of all of that, new aristocratic houses were being founded left and right, with loyalties to powerful states, rather than directly to the Zhou dynasty. Though, yeah, this process would eventually slow down by the end of the 7th century, but that was only really because new territory had run out. They'd conquered everything. The Zhou dynasty and their kings had lost much of their prestige, as we've known from the last couple episodes. In fact, they've lost so much prestige that they're not even being named by Eric Andreessen's podcast. Kidding, of course, but they had become so irrelevant that even being the hegemon was becoming irrelevant. So that piece fell apart. But remember that new kid on the block? The Wu state? Well, let's check back in on them because they were becoming more than just a pest. They were becoming legitimately powerful. And in 544 BC, someone was born in the Wu state. Someone who would forever change military tactics and military philosophy. That someone was Xuan Zhu, author of The Art of War. The Wu state, just some 40-odd years ago, was a barbarian kingdom armed and trained just to pester the true state, had just given birth to one of the greatest military minds in not just the history of China, oh no, but history everywhere. And like everything ancient, though, there is some discrepancy. The Spring and Autumn Annals said he was actually born in the Qi state, QI, while Sima Qin's later recounting of the events had him as a native of the Wu state. But I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a big Sima Qin fan. So Eric's history of China will agree with that, and we're going to say Sun Tzu was, well, a Wu state native. So clearly, though, if you don't even know maybe what state he's from, his early life is really not known that well, if at all. And anything we do know about it is probably not true to some degree. But his later life is more well known. Sima Qian wrote that before hiring Sun Tzu, the king of the Wu state wanted to test his skills by commanding him to train a harem of 360 concubines into soldiers. Yeah, you heard that right. Ancient history really never disappoints. If I'm a king, how else would I want to see, you know, my generals being competent? Well, obviously turning 360 concubines into soldiers is a pretty good way to find that out. Well, Sun Tzu divided the harem of concubines into two companies appointing the two concubines most favored by the king as the company commanders. Because obviously, that's what you're going to do. But the harem were clearly not going to just be crack soldiers right from the get-go. And when Sun Tzu first ordered the concubines to face right, they didn't, and instead they giggled. So in response to that, Sun Tzu said that the general, which yeah, was himself, was responsible for ensuring that soldiers understood the commands given to them. So... He again gave the command. Eh, maybe they misheard it, maybe they don't know. But again, instead of doing it, the concubines just giggled. So now what? He's reiterated the order. He's made it clear what he wants, but they're just giggling. Well, Sun Tzu did what anyone would do. 
he simply ordered the execution of the king's two favorite concubines. They were, yes, the company commanders, and yes, the king was extremely upset about this, but Sun Tzu explained that if the general's soldiers understood their commands, but did not obey, it was not the fault of the general, but instead the fault of the officer. Sun Tzu also said that, quote, once a general was appointed, it was his duty to carry out his mission, even if the king protested. So the king is protesting his two favorite concubines just got killed, but Sun Tzu believes that the mission must be carried out. So after both concubines were killed, new officers were simply chosen to replace them. But did the message work? Did they keep giggling? Of course they didn't. They obeyed immediately. Because both companies, now fully aware of the cost of further disobedience, quote, performed their maneuvers flawlessly, end quote. What a story that is. Of course, with that, the king of the Wu state hired Sun Tzu. But yeah, that was his test? Pretty crazy. But the king, who was King He Lü, became king of the Wu state in 506 BC. And with the famed Sun Tzu by his side, it was time to do what anyone would do. It was time to invade. So the Wu state, guided by Sun Tzu himself, began a massive invasion of the Chu state. The Wu state went on a tear, winning five battles in total, one of which was the well-recorded battle of Boju, B-O-J-U. Boju would be a decisive battle, but more importantly, it was the one that essentially proved all of Sun Tzu's theories as really dang effective. Right before the battle, the two armies had fought three battles between the Xiaobie, southeast of present-day Hanchuan, and the Dabie Mountains. Convinced that he could no longer win, Nanghua, king of the Chu state, wanted to flee and retreat, but he was dissuaded by his generals. But on the 19th day of the 11th month of the Chinese calendars, the two armies were drawn up at Boju. A character named Fu Gai, who was a general for the Wu state's army, asked the king of the Wu state you know, for permission to attack, saying that Nanghua, the king of the Chu state, was cruel, and his soldiers, look, they have no more will to fight, and that if he attacked, the Chu soldiers were sure to flee. But King He Lü denied his request. So what does Fu Gai do? Well, he just disobeyed the king entirely and went on the attack anyway with a force of around 5,000 men. And he was right. As he predicted, the Chu soldiers fled and the Chu army was routed entirely. One of the generals that had dissuaded the king from retreating was killed himself in the battle, and Nanghua escaped to the state of Zheng. But this battle saw the Wu state decisively crush the Chu. And they would really never come back from this. The Chu state, for all intents and purposes, was done. I mean, it would exist, but would it be a hegemon competing state? No. But hey, there has to be controversy, right? Because while this entire time I've been talking about Sun Tzu being there, and while Sima Qian clearly said Sun Tzu was a key figure in this battle, Sima Qian, again, wrote this much, much, much after the fact. The Zhou Zhuan, a history written much closer to the actual battle and was much more detailed, doesn't mention Sun Tzu at all. Huh. Not, not one word? No, not a single word. Name doesn't come up a single time. 
And to add fuel to the fire, around the 12th century in China, some scholars began to doubt the historical existence of Xuanzu at all. And it was primarily on the grounds that he is not mentioned in the historical classic Zhou Zhuan. And yet, this mentions tons of notable figures from the spring and autumn period, but never once mentions him. And the argument is convincing, because Sun Tzu's probably real name was Sun Wu, but it does not appear in any text prior to the Shi Ji, written by Sima Qian, and may have just been made up as a you know, descriptive cognitive meaning the fugitive warrior, because the surname Sun, S-U-N, can be glossed over as related term fugitive, Xuan, X-U-N. While Wu, W-U, is the ancient Chinese virtue of martial and valiant, which corresponds to Sun Tzu's role as sort of a hero doppelganger to the story of a true state warrior. And the only historical battle attributed to Sun Tzu ever, the Battle of Boju, literally has no record of him fighting in that battle or even being there in any capacity. So wait, whoa, hold up. Is he even real? So what does that mean about the art of war? Well, this could be, and this is my own theory based on, yes, real evidence, this could be a Homer and the Iliad situation. Was Homer real? Or was it just a pen name for a group of people? Was it one person with a pen name? Nobody knows. And skeptics of Sun Tzu even existing cite possible historical inaccuracies in the art of war. And these skeptics assert that the book was actually a compilation from different authors and military strategists. And attribution of the authorship to the art of war varies amongst scholars, and has included people and the movements, including Sun, a Chu scholar named Wu Zixu, then an anonymous author, or was it a school of theorists in the Qi or Wu state? Was it Sun Bin, one of Sun Tzu's relatives, and tons of other theories. And they're all pretty valid, but you know, there's only so much we can know about it. And Sun Bing appears to have been an actual person who was a genuine authority on military matters. And look, yeah, he might have been the inspiration for the creation of maybe a historical figure named Sun Tzu, sort of giving him a pen name. But the fact is, Sun Wu does appear in later sources, such as the Shi Ji and the Wu Ye Chuan Qiu. But yeah, all of those were written centuries after Sun Tzu's era. So now what? The use of the strips in other works, however, such as the methods of the Sima, is considered proof of Sun Tzu's historical priority. According to Ralph Sawyer, it is very likely Sun Tzu did actually exist and not only served as general, but also wrote the core of the book that bears his name. And it is argued that there is a disparity between the large-scale wars and the sophisticated techniques detailed in the text and the more primitive small-scale battles that many believe predominated in China during that time. But against this, Sawyer argues that the teachings of Song Wu, is Sun Tzu, were probably taught to succeeding generations in his family or small school of disciples, much like Confucius, which eventually included the very real Sun Bin. And so the idea is that he might have wrote the core of this book, but these descendants or students or whatever you want to call them may have revised upon it or expanded upon certain points in the original text, just like what happened to Confucius and his teachings. Because as I mentioned last week, Confucius did not write all of this down. He did not make the Analects. Those instead were written by followers. 
And that theory holds some weight because the art of war includes terms and technology, philosophical ideas, events, and military techniques that should not have been available to Sun Tzu during his life. Regardless though, the art of war is still traditionally ascribed to Sun Tzu. The book presents a philosophy of war for managing conflicts and winning battles, so even if he was not real, Sun Tzu's book is accepted as a masterpiece on strategy and has been frequently cited and referred to by generals and theorists all the way up to the present day. Sun Tzu's The Art of War uses language that may be unusual in a Western text on warfare and strategy. For example, in the 11th chapter of the book, Sun Tzu states that a leader must be serene and inscrutable and capable of comprehending unfathomable plans. The text contains tons of similar remarks that have long confused Western readers, lacking a sort of better awareness of the East Asian context. So when we read the commentaries by Julius Caesar, it makes a lot of sense to Western ears. The way he talks, the way they view military strategy, the way they view leadership, that might make sense to those from the West. So while the commentaries might not make as much sense to those in the East, those in the East understand Sun Tzu's work a lot better. And the meanings of such statements yeah, are sort of clearer now when interpreted in the context of Taoist thought and practice, because Sun Tzu viewed the ideal general as an enlightened Taoist master, which led to the art of war being considered a prime example of Taoist strategy. Taoism, by the way, is also a bit fuzzy when it comes to its founding, so we will get to that specifically more next week. And that also sheds a little light on, yeah, well, the controversy of if he really existed. Because the fact is, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, might not have been alive yet. Which means that there might have been, yes, additions to Taoist principle after Sun Tzu would have been alive. But who knows? The Art of War, though, addresses strategy in a broad fashion, touching upon everything from public administration to planning, the text outlined theories for battle, but it also advocated diplomacy and the cultivation of relationships with other nations as essential to the health of the state. While the book says, look, Art of War, the book does not say, I love war, let's always do it. The book instead is very plodding, it's pragmatic. And that's why you can find it in everything from a military school to a corporate headquarters. Because these sort of ideas he brings forward can be applied to different things outside of just combat. And Sun Tzu's Art of War has influenced many notable figures. Obviously, the Chinese historian Sima Qian recounted that China's first historical emperor, Qi Shi Huangdi, considered the book invaluable in ending the time of the Warring States. But even in the present day, in the 20th century, that is, the Chinese leader Mao Zedong partially credited his victory over Chiang Kai-shek to the art of war itself. And the work strongly influenced Mao's sort of interpretation and writings about guerrilla warfare, which further influenced communist insurgencies around the world. And now, in other East Asian countries, the art of war was introduced to Japan in 760 AD, and the book quickly became popular amongst Japanese generals. It significantly affected the unification of Japan in the early modern era, and before the Meiji Restoration, mastery of the art of war and its teaching was honored among the samurai, and its teachings were both exhorted and exemplified by influential shoguns and other figures in the state. And it didn't just stay popular in the 700 ADs, no. 
It remained popular amongst the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces. Admiral of the Pacific Fleet, who led Japanese forces to a victory in the Russo-Japanese War, was an avid reader of Sun Tzu. So all of this from Japan, a country not in China, helped unify the country, helped the country win very decisive battles that would help Japan, well, become the Japan that would fight the United States toe-to-toe. Is the book responsible for all this? Of course not. But its effects are not just felt from the ancient era. The effects of this book are felt now. And to the American listener, this might hit home a little bit more. Because Ho Chi Minh translated the art of war into Vietnamese for all of his officers to study. His general, Vo Nien Giap, the strategist behind victories over French and American forces in Vietnam, was an avid student and practitioner of Sun Tzu's ideas. But it wasn't just sort of isolated in East Asia, because the Department of the Army in the United States, through its command and general staff college, has directed all units to maintain libraries within their respective headquarters for the continuing education of personnel in the art of war. All the military colleges required is reading, and Sun Tzu's Art of War is listed on the Marine Corps' professional reading program. And it's not just kept in libraries, because during the Gulf War, both General Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell employed principles from Sun Tzu's The Art of War relating to deception, speed, and striking one's enemy's weak points. As I mentioned earlier, Sun Tzu's Art of War sometimes is misinterpreted by Western ears because sometimes those from the West have been criticized for not truly understanding the work and appreciating the art of war within the wider context of the Chinese society that it was written in. So what was in the art of war? I could have an entire show dedicated to just that. I could probably put together 20 episodes going over every little detail and how every little passage was used by this leader there and that general there, but I can't do that. But here are the highlights. Essentially, the book contained a detailed explanation and analysis of the Chinese military, from its weapons and its strategy to even the small things like rank and discipline. But Sun Tzu also stressed the importance of intelligence operations and espionage to the war effort, because back then it wasn't really a big deal. But essentially, he brought around the idea that knowing all the little things about your enemy will help you defeat them. And yes, he said, never underestimate your opponent. So how do you do that? Well, you spy on them. You get every piece of information you can to better inform yourself on the enemy and their weak points. So regardless of if he was real, if he was, Sun Tzu would be considered one of history's finest military tacticians and analysts. His teachings and strategies, regardless of if he was real or not, formed the basis of advanced military training for literally centuries. So with the maybe real, maybe not real Sun Tzu, the Wu state just became the hegemon of the Eastern Zhou dynasty. So from barbarian state to the most powerful state in just under 40 years? Wow! But you've never heard of the Wu dynasty. And that is because, well, there never was. Because all good things come to an end. And just as fast as they rose, the Wu state fell. But that is a story for a different time, as in, that is a story for next week. So, next week, we will talk about the fall of the Wu. We will talk about, yes, Taoism, 
and a bunch of other stuff I don't really know yet because right now things are about to fall apart for ancient China. We're going to have states and warlords and tons of things going around, so I'll have to do some more research and find a way to sort of tell this story in a linear path, if I can even do that. Regardless, though, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on The History. <laughs>